Bullets, in which we are taking a, another look at this idea of spiritual warfare. The reality that we live as physical beings, but also as spiritual beings in a world that is both physical and spiritual. And uh, this is something that our culture really wrestles with. I mean, we tend to kind of treat spiritual things as if they are uh, at best a commodity. I mean, we see this most often around uh, Halloween. Uh, some of the most popular and highest grossing horror movies around in the Halloween season are either about like serial killers or they're about demons. And while they are, while the movies are scary, they really we, the way we kind of treat them as is if they're fiction. They're, they're there to entertain us. They're there to kind of give us a fright. But one of the things that the Bible tells us is that it tells us that these things are real. That these aren't just stories. They're not just there for some, for some, uh, for some thrills or for some scares. But the, the truth is, is that there are indeed angels and demons. And that there is a battle going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. It's a battle that we as human beings find ourselves in the middle of, whether we like it or not. And so we've been wrestling with this of if, if we're in that battle, how are we best prepared for it? How do we see it playing out in our daily lives? And what resources does God give us in order to wage that battle well and stay focused on the purpose and the mission that he has for every single one of us? That's really what this series is all about. And so I think it's only right that before we even dive into God's word that we take a moment to allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have set aside this time and this space in which to meet with us, your people. That in the middle of a chaotic world, in the middle of a world where there is a battle going on, you provide a space, a safe haven in which we can come and meet with you, in which you can give us your gifts. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for those gifts, and we ask that as we, we come before your word, that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, we kicked off this series with Pastor Mark talking about the reality of spiritual warfare, saying that it is, in fact, a reality. It's a reality that, that not only Christians believe, but actually something that, that even scientists and psychologists have begun to wrestle with, that there is such a thing as the demonic, that there are angels and demons. And, and one of the things that we're doing now as we go into week two and then continue with weeks three and four is we're going to look at kind of the practical side of that. How do we understand that battle? How do we understand our role in it? How are we best equipped for it? And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing some really uh, practical teaching on it. And this first week, we're calling Tactics 101, The Subtle War, in which we're going to be talking about, you know, there, there's really three things you need to know anytime you engage in any contest, whether it's, uh, you know, a game against an opposing rival or whether it is, in fact, a war or a battle. There are really three things that you need to know. The first is you need to know your enemy. The second is that you have to understand his tactics. And the third is that you have to have a battle plan. You need to know your enemy, understand his tactics, and have a battle plan. That's really going to be the outline we're following for the next uh, couple weeks as we look at different tactics that are used. And this week we're talking about some of the more subtle tactics. And, and we started last week, Mark kind of set it up well with knowing our enemy. He said that we do have an enemy. The enemy is the devil, is Satan. 
the prince of darkness, the one who would seek to, to destroy our lives, to distract us from the mission that God has given us. But if you look at uh, what the Bible has to say about the devil, is it says that it's important to know him and to actually know his ways. And the reason why that's so vital is because uh, it is that first step in waging a battle. Sun Tzu in The Art of War talks about how important it is to know your opponent. He says that if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every single battle. So what do we know? What do we know about the devil? What does scripture tell us? Well, Scripture gives the devil a couple of different names, and this weekend, the, this morning, we're looking at two names that he's given in Scripture. The first comes from that uh, passage that we just read in Matthew chapter 4. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and the tempter came to him. The devil is referred to as the tempter. And then later on in Revelation 12, verse 9, it says, The great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. These two names, these two titles that are given to the devil uh, actually give us a little bit of insight into his tactics as well. He's the tempter and the deceiver, which means that two of his favorite tools to use against human beings is temptation and deception. That he loves to tantalize us with promises, but then lies about the consequences. He tantalizes us with promises, but then lies about the consequences. And it's because deception is a very powerful tool of warfare. This past week, I read a story about a very special unit in World War II. And they were eventually dubbed Ghost Army. And they were a fascinating unit on the, on the side of the Allies because they actually weren't soldiers. Ghost Army was made up of 1,100 actors and stage designers. Just actors and stage designers who were brought in, who were recruited by the Allies to deceive the Nazis. And so their entire job was to go onto the field of battle and simply create chaos. And the way they did that was they created things like inflatable tanks. I mean, people look at this picture like, well, how are those four guys carrying a tank? It looks really real. It's, it's fake. It's a balloon. It's filled up with air. And so they would create like, uh, you know, inflatable tanks and inflatable gun turrets. They would bring together like a convoy of trucks. And what they would do is they'd be like maybe a couple hundred yards from the front lines. And they would just run those trucks in a circle. So that the German troops on the front lines would see these trucks constantly going by. And think that the, that the Allies had count, just way more soldiers than they actually had. And they would be fooled by this. And they'd be intimidated by this. They would broadcast Fake radio on fake radio uh, stories, uh, you know, giving a kind of misdirection to the Nazis, saying that the Allies were in one place when really they weren't, and so on and so forth. Now, it seems a little odd. It's just like, so it's this, this, you know, group of actors and stage designers doing this, but, but the generals of the Allied troops say that we estimate that the tens of thousands of troops, if not more, were saved because of the misdirection and deception that these guys played. The chaos they set up on the battlefield. It's a part of warfare called psychological operations or psyops. 
And as, as I was reading a little bit about PSYOPs, this is what one article said. It said, PSYOPs are planned operations to convey selected information and indicators to audiences in order to influence their emotions, motives, objective reasoning, and ultimately the behavior of organizations, groups, and individuals. The article went on then to say this, that, that PSYOPs, uh, in order for them to be effective, you must plan your propaganda carefully. You must make sure that you know everything about your enemy and that you're targeting his beliefs and not using your own. And the reason I'm sharing this is because this is how the devil loves to operate. He uses temptation and deception. He plays on our beliefs in order to influence our emotions, our motives, even our critical thinking in a way that distracts us from our purpose, in a way that intimidates us and causes chaos in our lives, in a way that ultimately would take us out of the fight. And the ways that he does this are, are actually as old as time. There's nothing really new in his toolbox when you take a close look at just how these temptations play out. Because if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 4, that passage that we read uh, just a few minutes ago. And the reason why I want to look here is because it gives us some, some real insight into how he uses temptation and deception together. The, the story starts with Jesus, is, this is even before his public ministry really begins, it says that he's driven off into the wilderness to be tempted. And the tempter comes to him with a variety of temptations. And, and scholars have noted that when they look at Matthew chapter 4, that Matthew chapter 4 has interesting parallels with Genesis chapter 3, with the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. That actually the temptations that he comes at Jesus with are the very same kinds of temptations he used against Adam and Eve in the very, very beginning. So the first thing to know about the enemy's tactics is that they really don't change. They're the same. But he, employ, but he employs them in some very effective ways. One of the ways that he tempts us is by appealing to our appetites. He appeals to our appetites. When he came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he held out the fruit, the forbidden fruit to Eve. And it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes and desired to make one wise. He was appealing to an appetite. And likewise, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been out in the desert fasting. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He is hungry. And the devil comes and he kind of tries to hook him right at that level of appetite. And he says, command these stones. He says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He, get, he tries to get him at the level of the appetite. And he does kind of the same with us. And we, when we think of appetites, we often think of the common physical ones, right? Appetites like the appetite for food and for drink and for sex. And these are very, very effective tools that he often uses. I know for myself that when I wrestle the most with temptation, it's when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You guys ever heard that acronym HALT? H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And I find that oftentimes when I'm, when I'm sitting there and I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, that Snickers bar sounds really good. And I just raid the pantry. I mean, Jenny can come home and see that all of our favorite snacks are gone. She's like, have a bad day. Yes. But those, those are times when I really wrestle. But these aren't the only kinds of appetites that, that Satan tries to hook. He also tries to hook our emotional appetites. Our needs for things like approval. 
our need for, to, to, to come off as successful, our need to be recognized. He tries to hook these emotional appetites as well, these, these needs that we have in our hearts to, to be loved, to be respected, to be included, to be seen as valuable. And he hooks them and he says, you know, if you really want those things, you just do this instead. They're good things. I mean, food and drink, these are not bad things. Sex is not a bad thing. You know, being included and, being, and receiving respect and recognition, those aren't bad things, but Satan loves to hook them and he turns those things into addictions. Addictions that we would do anything in order to have. Addictions that we would give into time and time and time again because we think that if we can just have these things, if we can possess them, if we can consume them, then we will be somebody. Then we will be satisfied. It will be okay. And he leans into those. And, and he often stacks on top of those appeal to appetites as well as an appeal to comfort. And with Adam and Eve in the garden, Eve says, you know, I, I really shouldn't eat that fruit because God says if I eat that fruit, I'm going to die. And he says, no, you won't. You won't die. In fact, this is the fast track. You eat this fruit and you're going to be like God. Aren't you made in his image? I mean, come on. Likewise, he comes to Jesus and he says, you know, Jesus, if you really are the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple because God, he's going he's to command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up so that you won't even strike your foot on the stone. He says, hey, prove that you're God's son right now. Do it with a display of awesome power. It won't even hurt. It'll cost you nothing. He plays into this desire to be comfortable in life. And again, that could be physical comfort, putting our own physical comforts and our, uh, before anybody else's, saying, you know, I'm going to attend to my needs before I ever consider those of another person. But, but it's not just physical comforts. It could, be, it could be just taking the easy way out, saying, you know, to get ahead in my job, maybe I'll just take a couple shortcuts I mean, who cares about ethics so long as it doesn't really hurt anybody, right? And so we take the easy road. Satan appeals to comfort. And lastly, he piles on top of that an appeal to power. He comes to Adam and Eve and he says, you know, if you eat of the fruit, you're going to be like God. You don't need God to tell you anything. You don't need him to provide for you. You can be in charge. And likewise, he takes Jesus up onto a mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth in all their glory. And he says, you can have these if you simply bow down and worship me. He appeals to power, to our need to be in charge, our need to be, to, to, to be in control. He wants us to feel like we are at the center of our own universe. He says, you're your own person. You don't need to listen to God or anybody else. Make your own decisions. Lead your own life. He tantalizes with these things, but he fails. He fails to tell you about the consequences. That when we give in to these temptations, whether they're appealing to appetites, comfort, or power, we end up just being enslaved to those things even more. We get addicted to having more. We're willing to cut corners and step on people in order to get what we think we deserve. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it leaves us unsatisfied, unfulfilled, 
We end up needing more and more and more of the thing we think is going to make us feel whole. And yet at the end of the day, in the quiet of the night, before we lay our beds on the pillow, we know that it's still not enough. He hooks into that desire to be our own gods. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we take the fruit, we consume it, and we realize that our eyes are opened, but not in the way that we thought. And so we hide. And so we look to more and more and more, but we're looking in all the wrong places. See, the devil knows us. He's got some tactics. He has a battle plan. And he loves to play on those things that he knows hook us. There's this great illustration from John White's book, The Fight, this illustration of a piano. He says, have you ever fooled around with a piano? Open the top, press the loud pedal, and then sing a note into the piano as loudly as you can, and then stop and listen. You will hear at least one chord vibrating in response to the note that you sang. You sing, and a string in the piano picks up your voice and plays it back. Here, then, is a perfect picture of temptation. Satan calls, and you vibrate. Satan calls, and we vibrate. And people often wrestle with this whole idea of spiritual warfare, and they say, well, maybe these temptations, maybe they really just come from me, from a problem in my heart. I mean, is the devil really involved? Or people place too much, they say, well, it's only the devil doing it, and if he wasn't there, I'd be fine. But the truth is, is that it's both. That's what Scripture tells us. It's both. The devil sings, and we dance along. It's because we have this brokenness in our hearts, this thing that Christians call sin, so that when he sings, we vibrate. He plays the note, and we dance along. And we can keep dancing, knowing that that's how he operates, or we can develop another battle plan. We can ask God, what are the resources that you give us to engage in this battle well? Knowing that these are his tactics, what are the countermeasures? And what I love about Matthew chapter 4 is that God gives us countermeasures. He gives us a battle plan that we can use. And we see it when we start to take a look at how Jesus addresses the devil. He doesn't do it by wielding some awesome power. He doesn't make the devil explode in a burst of lightning. He uses a tool that is at every person's disposal. When he faces off with the devil and the devil holds out that tantalizing thing and starts lying about it, Jesus doesn't even look at it. But instead he responds with what? He responds with words from Scripture. The devil comes and says, hey, make these stones into bread. And Jesus responds, but man doesn't live by bread alone. But he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil says, hey, you know, throw yourself off. Prove that you're God and the angels will lift you up. Take the easy road. And Jesus says, no, for it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If he calls me to do it, I will do it. If he doesn't, I won't. But I will not put him to the test. Lastly, the devil says, we know if you just bow down to me, you can have all these kingdoms and all their glory. And he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He is the only one who truly has all authority over all nations. 
over and over again, Jesus responds with nothing more than the word of God. And yet, one of the things that Scripture tells us is that that's enough. That's all it takes. That the word of God is sufficient for dealing with the devil and his temptations. That that's all it requires because the reality is, is although they look like tanks, they're filled with air. And God's word brings truth and clarity. It helps us to cut through the deception and see where our real value and comfort come from. Because God's word tells us what a good life really looks like. That it's a life lived walking with the God who made us, who loves us, and who created us for a purpose. So Jesus just uses it. He just clings to it. He says, this is all I need. Because I know that my God is my Father, that he will take care of me, and so I can trust when he speaks. People often ask me, well, how do you know who God is? We can know simply by going to his word. But even more amazingly, you can know by looking at the life of Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And every time I look at the life of Jesus, I see someone who is trustworthy, who's loving, who will walk with me no matter what. I love these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul writes. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says, God is going to go with you to face every single temptation. He will walk with you through it, and he will provide exactly what you need in that moment. But Scripture goes on, and it just talks about how, how much God's power really is on our side. I mean, James 4, 7 says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What, what God is saying is he's saying that you have the right, just like Jesus, to tell the devil to get lost. That when he comes and tempts you, you can actually tell him, get out of here. Be gone. You guys remember what Pastor Mark said about that, that hymn, A Mighty Fortress, last week? There's this great line in, in this hymn, A Mighty Fortress, that says, one tiny word can fell him, talking about the devil. Would you remember what that word is? It's actually a liar. When Martin Luther wrote that hymn, he said, the word you can tell him every time he holds out that carrot, every time he holds out that shiny thing and says, this is what you need, you can say, liar. Get lost. I don't need what you're selling. Furthermore, God's word says, fix your eyes on good things. Flee from youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. See, the point here is Jesus clings to God's word because he knows his father. And that's a tool that we're called to use as well. That's our battle plan. You might be like, well, is that it? And the answer is, yeah, that's it. But that's all you need. I can't tell you how many times this has been true for me, that when I've been dealing with temptation and I bring to mind some kind of scripture verse that I've been memorizing, suddenly that temptation just kind of loses its luster. Then when my life is filled up with good things and pursuing God and in doing what he calls me to, those, those tantalizing things that, I, that are held out for me, they just don't kind of, they don't sway in the same way anymore. This is part of the reason why we encourage people to memorize Scripture. It's not just that we're giving you a, t a homework assignment. It's because that's a, that's a weapon that God has given you to use when you face temptation. One of our next steps on our Connect card is we've actually, uh, you can download some apps that can actually help you memorize Scripture. And we want to encourage you to do that. 
Because God's promise is that his word can do far more than we could ever imagine. It is a two-edged sword that God has given to us to use when the devil tempts. But there's one more amazing gift that God gives us. And it's the fact that he is always with us in the midst of temptation. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So one of the things the scripture tells us is that Jesus knows what you're going through. He's faced every single temptation. He knows. He can relate. He's been there. And he promises to be with you. But but the other thing it tells us is that he's overcome it. That he was tempted but didn't sin. He never once gave in. And because he succeeds, because he has the victory, we can actually walk with him into the throne room of God our Father to receive grace and mercy in times of need. It means that even when you fail, even when you do stumble, even when you trip up and give in to temptation, that's not the last word. You can receive God's grace and mercy to help pick you up in those times of need and continue to walk forward. We're actually going to be talking about that a little bit more next week. But I think it's really important to just say it right now is the fact that, that God's mercy and grace is sufficient to cover even our failings, even those moments when we do give in. And so when temptation comes back around, you can say, I've heard that song before. I'm not dancing to the tune because I can walk with my Lord and Savior into the throne room of God my Father. He will provide grace to help in times of need. And so whatever you're struggling with, whatever temptations are coming your way, know that God is with you. He knows that he has provided his word to give you strength and courage to bring truth, truth that cuts through deception and temptation and brings real life. And so with that in mind, I'd like us to pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that indeed your word is good that you give it to us so that we can read it, so that we can know it, and so that ultimately it can help guard us against those lies of the world, those temptations that the devil would bring into our life to tell us that this is, this is where real life and meaning and purpose is found, and that we can know, we can know, number one, that's not true because all of life and purpose and meaning is already given to us through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would know that we are made by you, that we are loved by you, that you walk with us, And that, Lord, that would not only give us courage, but help us to beat back the temptations of the deceiver. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ, who alone has the victory. It's in his name that we say, amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ? Or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group. Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.